I read this story before, but it's worth reading again. An old story tells of a rabbi living in a Russian city about a century ago. Disappointed by his lack of direction and life purpose, he wandered in the chilly evening. With his hands thrust deep in his pockets, he aimlessly walked through the empty streets, questioning his faith in God, the scriptures, and his calling to ministry. The only thing colder than the Russian winter air was the chill within his soul. He felt so enshrouded by his own despair that he mistakenly wandered into a Russian military compound that was off-limits to civilians. The bark of the Russian soldier shattered the silence of the evening chill. Who are you? And what are you doing here? Excuse me, replied the rabbi. I said, who are you? And what are you doing here? After a brief moment, the rabbi, in a gracious tone so as not to provoke the soldier, said, how much do you get paid every day? What does that have to do with you? Well, Almost with the delight of someone making a new discovery, the rabbi said, I will pay you the equal sum of money if you will ask me those same two questions every day. Who are you? And what are you doing here? Who are you? And what are you doing here? It's a question about identity, and it's a question about purpose. And this rabbi was at a crossroads. But somehow, in that moment, almost providentially, rediscovering his identity and his purpose helped him to make a decision that would ultimately change the direction of his life. If anything, recovered. Identity always precedes purpose because identity, who we are, informs what we do. And sometimes it takes a crossroads experience, crossroads type experience, to rediscover your true identity. Sometimes discovering your true identity creates a crossroads experience. And what is a crossroads? Well, it's not a building in Burlington. It's a place or a point where at which a crucial decision must be made that will have far-reaching consequences. It's a point in your life, it's a place in your journey where a really, really important life-changing decision must be made. And once that decision is made, it has far-reaching consequences. And so today, if you will receive it this way, this is a prologue message about crossroads. Prologue is simply the opening of a story that establishes the context and gives some background details. Sometimes it's actually referred to as an earlier story that ties into the main one. It was actually a a literary device discovered in ancient Greece by a strange-looking man with funny hair named Euripides, who was considered a tragedian, a person who wrote tragedies. He must have had a happy life. <laughs> but that brings us to Matthew 16, 
verses 13 to 20, and I want to read them to you very quickly. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Your translation may say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church And the forces of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Father, I just pray that you would grant us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want us to hear through this story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Matthew is just one of those gospels that is so well written and so jam-packed with detail about Jesus that you never really realize it until you start digging in with someone who understands the way things are written, who can pick up on clues and innuendos, and subtle hints in the way things are being said and things that are not said. Now, it's hard to reconcile the fact that Matthew was actually a tax collector, right? And maybe that's what lent to his incredible skill as a writer. It's just that he had to really pay attention to detail. And uh, for those of you who have accountants, you understand that does not need to be explained. Matthew paid very close attention to Jesus, and throughout his gospel, there are things that he says about Jesus that I think in all fairness to him, but in all honesty to ourselves, we overlook and miss these cues, these subtle hints, that he's not just writing about anybody. Yes, we know he's writing about Jesus, the Son of God, But he's got such insight into the identity of Jesus and his purpose that to track with them detail by detail, you start to begin to think. And you saw this. You were witness to this. If there's one central theme in Matthew, it would be simply this. That Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah bringing salvation history, that, that work that God put into place and set into motion to redeem lost humanity back to himself. Bringing salvation history to completion, fulfilling the covenant promises made to Abraham and David, inaugurating, launching, putting into place, into motion, the kingdom of God, and bringing in the new age of salvation for Israel 
but also for the rest of the world and thereby saving them from their sins. Matthew has such insight into the covenant promises made to Abraham, covenant promises made to David. He weaves them all throughout his gospel. And they're powerful because they really shape our understanding of who Jesus is. And right from the outset, his very first opening statement, as a matter of fact, you could probably see it out of the corner of your eye on the left, uh, left side of the screen on top. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's almost like, boom, I want to start with a bang. And you understand, folks, that for us, at this point in time, so far removed from this world, and so far removed from what it meant to be a Jew, persecuted, oppressed, in slavery and in bondage, uh, under foreign powers constantly, having faint recollections of the good old days and longing for it to come back, while at the same time asking God, are you going to be faithful to the things that you promised us, or is this all a joke? For God, how long is our punishment for our sins, for our idolatry, for our leaving you, how long is that going to last? And when will this all come to an end? When will we be a people again? And when will we have our nation back? And when will we be able to live and worship you in peace without the threat of death? How people lived that long with that kind of hope and watching year after year life getting worse and miserable and painful I don't know, but they did. And so all throughout Matthew, Matthew starts inserting the details to his people, reminding them of this story of the one who they had longed for that he really, in fact, had come. That what he did was nothing less than dotting every I and crossing every T in the promises of God right to the point of the present. Well, there's so much stuff in Matthew and we would never be able to have the time to go through it all. But where we land today is a very significant place. And uh, the amount of individuals, scholars, people who really know how to organize documents and and follow leads and and kind of say, well, this belongs here, and and this is where this starts to happen, and this is where this moves on. Um, I I, I looked at their work, and I thought, man, oh, man, you know, it's kind of like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Who do you choose? Because they all really had a well-presented argument as to the way Matthew's gospel flowed. But the one that I landed on is one that kind of seems to be a generally accepted uh, breakdown of the way Matthew's gospel moves. They all end up kind of saying the same thing. 
that in Matthew 16, you encounter what I have uh, probably redesignated as a term, a crossroads moment. A place where decisions are going to be made and directions are going to be taken that's going to change everything from here on in. And what makes Matthew 16 a watershed crossroads moment is that in spite of all the things that Jesus has been doing, what he's been teaching, and truly in his life, his person, his actions, it can be said actions speak louder than words because really his actions spoke much more louder than his words. Even in that, mounting opposition to him is just increasing and increasing. and It's not like Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers are just kind of agreeing to disagree. It's getting a lot more conflicted than that. Tempers are flaring. People are becoming impatient. And their response to Jesus is becoming a lot more hostile. And so, ironically, in Matthew 16, we find Jesus with his disciples in a really, really far northern region of Israel, almost to the very, very top boundaries of Israel. It it just seems like it's such an an out-of-the-way, far faraway place that you almost wonder did did you miss something did you did you take the wrong direction did um were the calculations off and obviously we know they weren't this is jesus mark uh inserts a detail in this story that matthew doesn't talk about and he simply says that at some point jesus and the disciples were in bethsaida which is really about 25 miles south of Caesarea Philippi. So they end up there, and what prompts Jesus to have kind of like a real soul-searching, heart-to-heart talk with the disciples, we can all offer our best educated guess, I guess. But as I said, this is a watershed moment, a crossroads experience. Jesus, with an impeccable sense of timing, asks them this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Okay. Well, of course, you understand the way this goes, right? Everybody's joking about it. Everybody's kind of going, well, you know... uh, Hey, you're the Baptist, you're, you're, uh, you're Elijah, you're, you're Jeremiah, some of the prophets. And, you know, it, I mean, it's, in some sense, it's kind of flattering because um, what we do know about prophets is that they always brought the word of the Lord to the people and that it was not uncommon for prophets to be anointed with power and to do some pretty amazing miracles, i.e. Elijah and Elisha. So they're all, they're all kind of 
saying what they got to say. But then he turns it around and he says, um, by the way, this is a, a little infomercial for you. This gives you an idea of just how far north that Jesus was. Um, Caesarea Philippi was probably the distance from here to London, Ontario, away. So can you imagine walking to London today? In February. So you can imagine the walk that Jesus and his disciples had from London back to Mississauga. They're a long way from home. So he asked the question, who do you say I am? You see, Jesus was never one to put stock in what people thought about him, which when you think of the implications of that, it says a lot about his sense of personal identity and self. But he wastes no time in wanting to know what his closest followers have to say about his identity, about him. But here Jesus turns the spotlight from the crowds to the core. It's almost as if he's saying, you summarize the crowd's opinion of me, but now you've been with me for these past two years. Tell me, what have you observed? What conclusions have you come to about me? Now, I don't know if they felt like they were under the microscope or if they were put on the spot, but my hunch is that things got very quiet. Now was the time to no longer hide behind other people's opinions of who Jesus was. Now was the time to come forward and say so. We could only speculate Jesus or why Jesus chose this particular place and this particular time to ask critical questions about who he is, his identity, what he does. But we know that up to this time, the disciples have spent more than enough time with him. They've experienced incredible things. They've encountered all kinds of people. They've had Jesus himself explaining to them in, in such precision detail and clarity about really what was being said in the Old Testament, like never before. But more importantly, they have seen him up close and, and, and personal. They've seen the quintessential example of the God-man right there. Brings us to my third point. Somebody has to step forward, right? I mean, somebody has to answer the question. From public opinion to personal observation to Peter's declaration. So Peter comes forward. He says, you are the Christ, Messiah, the son of the living God. Whether it was embarrassed confusion or maybe stunned silence, Peter makes his way to the front of the group as if the curtains had been pulled back, the lights turned on, And something supernatural touches his comprehension and his clarity. And Peter says two things about who Jesus is. You're the Christ, the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. I would hazard to say 
that no matter how much we try to study this, no matter how much detail we understand about what it would have meant for a Jew in that time to even remotely conceive of the possibility that standing in their midst was the one, the one that all of their scriptures had pointed to. That at that point and time and place in their little life in history, everything was going to change because of who this person is. That all the promises they heard about in their version of Sunday school, Saturday school, it's all coming together right here. You are the Christ. It's the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. The Old Testament was eventually written in Greek, was available during this time, and so was the Aramaic version, but this is the one that, um, I guess, to some degree became prevalent. And Christos, or Christ, equals Messiah. And it's related to another word, creo, which simply means to anoint physically with oil, with the Holy Spirit. So when you read in Luke 4.19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The name is that. That is what the name refers to. The implication here is this person who's standing before them has been called and chosen and anointed of God for an unbelievable task. Now, I included this this morning. I'm sorry. Um, It's actually not in my notes. It was a last-minute insertion. But I just want to read it to you quickly. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now we know that immediately this, this beautiful prophetic declaration is he initially fulfilled in Solomon, but God's looking down the story book of time. And he's looking to this moment, to this time, when Jesus the Christ, Jesus the smeared one with oil, Jesus the Messiah shows up. So that that is this. He's the son. He's the one who is going to establish forever God's rule here. He's the king. He's the one that they have been awaiting 
Now, he not only says that you are the Christ, the Messiah, but you're the son of the living God. And when you consider the place where that revelation happens, it's remarkable. Sometimes it's not only what you say, it's where you say it, right? It's where you say it. The place where they find themselves in this northern part of Israel is really a very, very dark, ungodly uh, part of northern Israel, right literally at the borders. If Mark's perception of what's going on at this time is accurate, and obviously it is, Jesus never really actually went into Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. He, he was in the vicinity, but he must have been close to an area that somehow had a stony, rocky, very prevalent, prominent landscape around so that when Peter said what he said and Jesus replied the way he replied, all the dots would begin to be joined together and a picture would emerge of what was being said here. This part of Israel at one time belonged to the tribe of Dan, one of Jacob's 12 sons. But eventually it gave in to Baal worship, so much so that the worship of Yahweh in that part of Israel just just about all became oblivious. And then when Alexander the Great came in and conquered the Middle East, the Greek god Pan, this horrible-looking creature that was half man, half goat with big horns, played a little pan flute, right? Not the kind of person you want to invite over for lunch. I mean, you know, it never ceases to amaze me that foreign gods always look so scary and creepy, right? But anyhow, that's that's another story. Um... He, he was nasty. I don't want to say anything more about him. You don't really need to know. Unless you committed to Google and finding out, but don't. Um, but he was worshipped as a god. The point being here is that Peter, by revelation, is saying, you're the son of the living God because all these other gods that used to reside here, that used to be in this vicinity, in this area, they're all dead. The truth of the matter, I don't even think Peter understood what he was saying. But Jesus is mirroring back the statement to him. The son of the living God. It was ultimately Jesus' example. And it was, by revelation, Peter's way of God's way, I through Peter, and you know, sometimes it's really hard to kind of chop that with the way it rolls out, but here you've got this Messiah, leader, deliverer figure here, but at the same time, you have one who's divine. He is the son of the living God. And all throughout Matthew, Matthew uses this term over and over again just to highlight the fact that this is not just, you know, it almost sounds sacrilegious, but this is not just your deliverer. This is your God himself. 
here. Now, did Peter really get what he in fact was saying? You could probably make a case for both. I'm going to leave that one alone to more intelligent people. The truth is is that in that time, the idea of a David-like king, a messiah, really had more of a political military overtone than a spiritual one. But by Peter joining Messiah, the Christ, Son of the living God, the picture is completed here for them. Now there's a danger here, and I just want to park on this for maybe a minute or so, is that our over-familiarity with Peter's confession really is always at risk to becoming something of an underestimation. Kind of a churchy generalization that we've all grown up to become very comfortable with. And maybe to the point of unintentionally thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know that, I know that. What's your point? You see, it's, I guess in some sense, it would be understandable for us to think that way because we're not them. We don't find ourselves under military oppression and domination and slavery the way they do. Mind you, the truth is is that the slavery that a lot of us, some of us feel, would probably be even worse. As the singer from the uh, the group White Heart said in an old, old song that I listen to every now and then, he said, the biggest chains that I ever learned about were the ones that were wrapped around me, meaning his own sinfulness. So Jesus responds to Peter. He affirms him. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now this is jam-packed, right? This This is the mother load. I don't know if Jesus got giddy. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that maybe once, when you consider how many times the the um, the disciples had knucklehead moments, where they said things, he's just kind of scratching his head, going, "Oh my goodness, shall we call fire down on them?" Yeah, yeah, we'll have a barbecue. I, I would like to believe that he's just looking at Peter and he's just like, yes. He makes a number of statements and declarations here that um, I want to unpack a little bit. I think some of them might even make you uncomfortable. And I'll qualify that in a moment. First of all, he begins to say, Peter, you're in a state of divine blessedness. You have received God's favor. You've received divine clarity about me from my Father. This didn't come from some kind of mystical discovery or rational deduction 
or conclusion that you came up to by, by pouring through scrolls and gathering the evidence and then drawing a line underneath and going, I think I've joined the dots. I think I, think I, fi- I, think I figured you out. Clearly, says, my father revealed this to you. Back in Matthew chapter 11, he actually rejoices in the fact that God will hide revelation, clarity about him from the wise, the learned, the arrogant, the proud, the elitists, and he'll reveal them to children, to babes, to the humble, the unassuming, the I don't have any problems admitting that I'm ignorant and uneducated. I, I don't know. But it's what he says after this that I think, uh, to be quite honest with you, was something of a revel- revelation to me. And here I will qualify it for you. Um, I don't know how many of you come from a Roman Catholic background. And if we have Roman Catholic brothers and sisters here, um, well, I'm glad you're here. But I grew up in a home where my grandfather would essentially throw down the Pope Peter card. Well, you know, Peter's the Pope, the first Pope, the only Pope. And this is what he said. And so, and so when, when he found out I became a Christian, he threw me out. <laughs> he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, Pop, don't pop me. <laughs> I, well, I, I wouldn't pop me. He's just a tough Irish guy. He's, he's... But anyhow, yeah, so he threw me out because, you know, he, he, you know you're, you're a Protestant, you're a traitor, you're a devil. How can you, you know, uh, anyhow. With our Roman Catholic apprehensions sometimes, and I might even insert very, very graciously, sometimes our misinformed suspicions about Certain parts of Roman Catholicism. Not all of it. Certain parts. It's easy for us to throw out proverbially the baby with the bathwater. And so when Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this rock, we do some pretty amazing grammatical linguistic gymnastics to essentially say, Peter is not the rock. Peter is Petros, masculine. The rock is Petra, feminine. But the point is, is that Matthew is not going to call Peter Petra. He's not a girl. He's a man. Peter is the rock. Before you start throwing hymn books, keep those seatbelts fastened. It's a translation of the Hebrew word kepha. And in Hebrew, kepha mas- is, is no different masculine or feminine. It's the same word. 
So there is probably in all likely a very good chance, and I will let my older brother, or younger brother, defend me. I'm the older brother, right? That's, I'm your older brother, by the way, by two or three years. Can you believe it? <laughs> Security? Yeah. Um, he is most likely speaking Aramaic, right? They're, they're, they're Jewish. Let's, let's, let's face it. They're Jewish. Kepha, upon this Kepha, I will build my church. In other words, Peter, I know you. You got out of the boat when everybody thought and played the safety card. You asked the question about forgiveness when everybody else was kind of going, oh, geez, really? You don't have to forgive Seven times seven, what? You're the only one who is willing to come through the crowd and actually come out and say it. God, man. Peter, upon what I see in you, upon what I will do through you, you're not there yet. As a matter of fact, in the rest of the story, you'll find out how far he is not there yet. But I'm going to build my church. You're going to be foundational in what I'm going to construct. I am the chief cornerstone, but you're the rock. And when you start looking through the Gospels and through the book of Acts, you start understanding that There was a lot that would not happen had it not been for Peter preaching the gospel. Not waving a magical wand of entrance into the kingdom and exit out of the kingdom. And you get in and you don't. You know, Jesus loves you. Jesus doesn't love you. Jesus loves you. Jesus doesn't love you. No. But with his leadership on the day of Pentecost, with his leadership going to the Samaritans, with his leadership going to... A Caesarea to the Gentiles. God opens up doors. Anyhow, I, I'm ahead of myself. Peter, you're the rock. And let me tell you something. Not even death itself is going to stop what I'm going to do. We like to create these fancy images of the gates of hell and demons standing on guard and are fighting against the saints. It's got nothing to do with that. The imagery here is that the, that the gates of Hades, of Sheol, this was the holding place for the dead. And Jesus' way is just simply saying, even death itself, martyrdom, what they will do to you when they hunt you down and they crush you. When there's an underground church in China and, and, the, and the church is just about obliterated. When, when and throughout the middle, medieval ages, when the Huns come in and the barbarians come in. And when the Vikings come. I mean, you name it. It's been there. And it's come against the church. And the church has never flinched. The church has always survived. Gates of hell are not going to prevail. Death is not going to stop what I'm going to build. Now, I'm going to give you keys. That's music to the ears of every teenager, right? 
I get the keys. To the shed where the lawnmower is. No. To the car, right? <laughs> I get the keys. What are we saying? Freedom, right? In all fairness, so your son's not thinking or daughter's not thinking, I get the keys, so I get to lock you out of the car. No, I get to do something with the car, something good. Yeah, well, that's up for debate, but um, the point is, here's the point. Peter, I'm going to give you the ability, the privilege of granting people access into this new community that I'm building through the preaching of the gospel. Every time you preach, Every time you declare who I am and share the gospel, it's like a door is being open for people to come through. You can't drag them in. You can't force them in. And let me tell you something. Once you tell them the truth, you can't keep them out. Right? You can't keep them out. It was a Spurgeon who said, I, I don't defend the gospel. It's like a lion in a cage. I just open up the door and let it out. Right? <laughs> You see, later on in Matthew, Jesus has quite a, you know, in-your-face conversation with the Pharisees. You know, you, you bunch. You lock up the kingdom of God and shut other people out. In Luke, he says, you take away the keys of knowledge and you don't, get, you don't go into the kingdom and you don't let anyone else go into the kingdom. What's all that saying? It's just simply saying this. They had the ability, by distorting what they were teaching, to make it nearly impossible for anybody to come to the living God. And if you think... We don't have the same ability. We better be careful not to arrive to that conclusion because we do. More about that in a few moments when I land this plane. So really the keys refer to the fact that chronologically Peter was acting as Jesus' representative to first announce the message to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. Think about it. I know here's the thing, folks. Is that after Acts 16... You don't hear about Peter anymore. He didn't go into some pope establishment. He wasn't venerated. He wasn't uh, given a country club out in the Judean wilderness where he can just receive visitors and talk about Jesus stories. The truth is, is that God's retirement plan for Peter resulted in him going to Rome and being crucified upside down. Okay? So the point is, is that Jesus gave him authority the privilege of granting people access into the kingdom of God through the preaching of the word. Nothing magical or mystical. People, Peter couldn't keep people out of the kingdom. Peter didn't have the authority to say, well, because you're not of Jewish descent or Jewish background, you don't get in. No kingdom for you. A light moment, I'm sorry. Peter, whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you lose will be You know what, folks? This is a grammatical device, and this troubled me, honestly, for decades. I, I would read this, and i go, 
just binding, loosing stuff. Because I've been, I've been around people who, you know, when, when, I, when I, I shared my heart and I shared some of the struggles that, that I was going through, they were ready to bind things in me. Man, they bound things in me. I got bounded and binded and I'm sure if they could have wrapped a rope around me, they would have wrapped that too. But you know, they, they were binding things that were coming against me. They were binding things that were in me and pulling them out and binding and binding and binding. And then they were loosening other things on me. You thought nobody ever had enough discernment to, to maybe loose a check for $25,000, but no, they, 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 they loosed a lot of things on me. Okay, uh, forget, forget the facetiousness. I, I'm, I, I know, I know, I've, I've, I've stepped over the line. The point is, Jesus is saying to Peter, when I build my new community, when I build my new community, I will be doing it through people. And when you all start gathering together and you start sharing the story of who I am and what I've done and why I came, and you start interacting as a community, like somewhere along the way, you're going to have to come to some conclusions about what's permissible as a fellowship of believers and what's not. Because see, Peter, you're not going to have a manual on how to do church because there ain't one. The only thing that you will be able to look back to is this little church that you've been a part of for the last three years. And you understood the way we related to each other as this little church, this little ecclesia, this little community. Love was the priority. We called foul when it was necessary to call foul on each other. I corrected you when it was necessary to correct you. But did I ever kick you out? Did I ever punish you and send you away? Of course not. So Peter, and this is just, the grammar of this is astonishing. He's not saying you will come up with kind of like the guidelines and the boundaries of how to do church. What you will allow and what you won't allow. When you go to lead my community, you will have discovered it. The grammar literally says, whatever you loose, you will have discovered it has already been loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind, you will have come to discover that it has already been bound in heaven. In other words, Peter, you don't get out there and you just charge in like a bull in a china shop saying, well, this is the way it's going to be. It's my church, and by golly, I'm, I'm Peter, and I call the shots, and this is what goes. They will pray. They will dialogue, they will discuss, and they will come to conclusions only to realize this is what the Holy Spirit wanted. This is what God wanted from the start. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I really hope it does. It might take time just to to sink in, but the point is Peter is going to along with the disciples, and we see this expanded in Matthew 18. I don't have time to go there. I wish I could. Is that they together collectively will begin like with fresh paint, fresh cement, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, in their understanding 
of what Jesus taught them and the experience of their community together over the past three years, they will begin to shape the way church looks like. Let me conclude with this. This message is really the prologue, the launch of our, our Easter, our Lent sermon series. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be traveling together as a congregation towards the cross event, towards Easter Sunday, towards Good Friday, towards everything that has shaped and has defined our faith. Now, please don't cringe at me when you hear the word Lent because I know there was a time in my life when I cringed. You see, we celebrated Advent together as a way of preparing ourselves developing, shaping, training ourselves in the virtue of expectation. We didn't just look back and marvel at the story of Jesus' first coming. We allowed that story to begin to shape us in such a way that we looked ahead to the fact that he's coming back again. If Advent, if our celebration of Christmas is about cultivating a sense of expectation, then this season we call Lent is a time to cultivate identification with Jesus. In other words, what does it mean to walk with Jesus from Caesarea Philippi all the way to Jerusalem to the end? What are the implications for me if I will follow him? I could say much more about that, but that would be letting the cat out of the bag. Application. So let's go back to the story and let me ask you some questions. Are you allowing God to continually clarify to you who Jesus, in fact, really is? Are you allowing God to clarify to you who Jesus is? Now, I know there are a lot of great and wonderful people that will share insights on who Jesus is. But ultimately, it's their best informed opinion on what they are reading, studying, learning. You see, there's so many public and personal opinions of who Jesus is that is shaped by people's experience of Jesus that, you know what? That's, that, that's good. That's true for them. That's how they encounter Jesus. That's how they experience Jesus. But ultimately, when all is said and done, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying to you, who do you say that I am? I'm not asking you what I mean to you. I'm not asking you, what do you think about what I've done for you so far in your journey of following me? Who am I? Who do you say that I am? I would say make sure that your faith is built on his identity that he reveals to you through scripture and not on public or personal impressions of who Jesus is. Secondly, and it's not up there. I happened to insert it this morning. Are you willing to stand up and to stand out and declare and confess what you believe to be true about Jesus. You know, it's this funny thing. I always used to think that 
I would be ashamed about sharing, you know, things about God. I, 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 not ashamed, but I thought I'd be really, really scared to share that with non-Christians. And I found that that was never an issue. Every now and then, it's interesting, I, I was around family members where I, I found myself feeling a little uncomfortable, almost maybe somewhat anxious. It's kind of like, oh, that's, that's my uncle, and that's my aunt, and I mean, what are they going to think, and all, all this stuff. Maybe it's not an issue for you. The point I'm driving at is that whether we're around peers or whether we're around sneers, we ultimately have to stand up and stand out and say, this is what I believe. This is who Jesus is. He's not Oprah's Jesus. He's not Deepak Chopra's Jesus. Thirdly, have no doubt that Jesus has an agenda, a grand purpose. He is building his church, not your church. He is building his church, not your church. And I say that with every ounce of sensitivity, understanding the implications. But if I heard it once, I've heard it before. I I love this church. It's the kind of church I want. It's the kind of church that, you know, it connects with me. It's, you know, I feel good in this church. And it's like, but it's his church. We don't get to mess around with it. We get to discern what he wants his church to be. And we get to cooperate. We get to, to give to it. But we don't get to determine what it becomes. Are we prevailing? Are we participating or passively sitting back and letting all the Simon Peters do everything? Fourthly, nobody is exempt from the building process. We all have a role. We've all been given a great responsibility. And I know this might be a little hard to swallow. We all have keys. We all have keys. In other words, we all have been given a God-given ability through our lives, through the way we live, through what we teach, what we preach, what we share, what we believe. It will either be an open door for somebody to come to Jesus or not. You see, when our words don't line up with our lifestyle, it's like we're unlocking the door but keeping it closed. We're saying one thing, but we're living something completely different. Is your life an open door that people can come through, that people can see Jesus, that people can go to Jesus, or is your life like a closed door? In other words, listen, I'm doing my Christian thing. Don't bug me. Leave me alone. You know, you're a pagan. Go do your pagan thing and get away from me. I don't have the time of day for you. You see, that's locking the door. Well, no, it's not. God's going to reach him. Well, if you're there and you're a Christian, you're living next to them, guess who's got a set of keys? And what is it in your life that you are permitting that allows God to shine through you? What is it in your life that you're saying, you know what, I need to say no to this because this, this, uh, this is keeping people from seeing Jesus. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, where on earth does this idea of crossroads come in? As I said, this is a prologue message. And I really, really, honestly, I can't tell you the last time I struggled 
this much with putting a message together. But Jesus here at this point is at a crossroads. And Pastor Shannon and those who will be speaking after him are going to unpack that for you. But this is the dividing line in the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 16. This is the place of no return. This is where decisions are going to be made about the future that will have implications not only for the disciples, but for every human being on the face of the earth. This is the point. If Jesus indeed the Messiah has promised, then something was going to happen, something was going to change. Jesus couldn't simply affirm his identity and then go off and hide somewhere. But his crossroads also creates one for us. The revelation of Jesus as Messiah will become where his decisions about his future will be made clear. And the direction he takes will literally change human history forever. But it also sets into motion the decisions and directions the disciples would have to make that day, that time. But those decisions are still being made and directions are still being taken to this day because of what happens in Matthew 16. We're at the crossroads. And over the next six or seven weeks, our prayer is simply, God, help us to make decisions and help us to take direction that maybe we have resisted, ignored, looked aside at for far too long. Just as I'm ready to um, pray this morning, in this moment of silence, in this moment of, of just simply closing our eyes and focusing in on the words of Jesus, the implications of this story. I think Jesus is saying to you, I, I want you to, I want you to have, in this day and age, the, the, the equivalent of what Peter had. Not some earth-shattering experience, but I want you to have such a clarity about me that there is no doubt in your mind about who I am. Because until that happens, you're always going to be a part of a crowd looking in, wondering, well, I, I, I guess that's, that's, that's who Jesus is. But it's until you know and realize who he genuinely is that all history begins and turns around him and him only. Until you come to that place where he, he is the Savior, the Son of the living God, that he is the cornerstone of everything the scriptures speak of and point back to, that he's everything we are waiting for, our lives are not going to line up. We will simply be going around the wilderness for one more trip, getting to the place, or we're just ready to make one more trip. I really believe that some of us need a fresh understanding of who Jesus is because the impact of that is not just in our understanding, it's in the way we live. The revelation that God the Father gave to Peter 
literally opened up the door for influence and servanthood and leadership in the church that Peter probably never dreamed would have been possible. And today, I don't know who this is for, but I would just say to you, come to your decision about Jesus and then let him work out what's going to happen afterwards. Don't worry about the details. Don't worry about what it's going to cost you. Don't worry what people are going to think about you. Don't worry what your friends are going to say. Don't worry who you're going to lose as a buddy in the process. It has come to that decision that, Lord, you are who you say you are. You're the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. As we are on the verge of a crossroads, that you would peel back the curtains of familiarity, that you would open up the light so that all the darkness of miscomprehensions and false expectations and ill-informed perceptions and, and silly rationalizations were just simply blown away. Jesus, you're the Jesus who you say you are. You're not the Jesus who Beth Moore says you are. You're not the Jesus who Billy Graham says you are. You're not the Jesus who whoever says you are. You're the Jesus who you say you are. And that's the Jesus we want to see. So could we have the equivalent of what John the Baptist did when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one you mustn't follow now. Could we have that? Could that bring us to a crossroads of associations, of involvements? Could that be the deciding point of our future once again?